for the majority force production and force and, velocity and everything everything, everything everything that we say demonstrated if we didn't have if we didn't have the connective tissue behaviors we would not be able to do anything we'd be like boneless chickens good morning happy monday i have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect all right it is intensive week. Intensive 12 starts Thursday. I'm very excited. We haven't done one of these in a long time. Um, looking to shake off the ring rust and have a great time with this group. They have done all of their preparatory work, so they are going to be ready to go. Um, by the way, we, we've selected the intensive 13 people um, for July. Um, had to go to an alternate this time. So this happens on occasion where somebody gets selected and they eventually can't come, so we had to replace them. So that's exciting for, for our first alternate. Um, I know he's excited about it. Uh, today's Q&A is with Clint, my, my martial arts instructor. And so Clint is trying to, to refine his, his teaching method and his technique. And so we were talking about um, how we produce forces for striking and things. And we got on a really good discussion, so I said, hey, we gotta record this because it's gonna be useful for a lot of people because it's a great review as we looked at the, the, the propulsive phase through the foot. We talked about how connective tissues are utilized for force production. So, so again, um, a lot of great topics, great review, so I think you'll find this useful. If you have any questions, go to askbillharman at gmail.com, askbillharman at gmail.com, and if you'd like to get a, on to a 15-minute consultation, um, make sure you put 15-minute consultation in the subject line, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Um, if, you, if you're trying to get caught up on the videos, lots of stuff up on YouTube, go to the YouTube channel, make sure you subscribe, and I will see you guys tomorrow. So my question was regarding the foot force production we talked about before, right. but I was confused when it comes to sprinting where they tell you that your toes are always on the ground and your heel never touches, Correct. but that seems like you're still producing max force. Okay. All right. So, so, so we've got three phases, three phases of the, of the propulsive action that takes place. Okay. So if we were just talking about walking, um, you would have you would have a, a, the the heel would strike right, and then you go to foot flat. So there's there's three rockers that we talk about. So we talk about a heel rocker, we talk about an ankle rocker, and then we talk about a toe rocker. Okay. So so I do, I take those three phases and I look at that as an early representation of propulsion, which which is for for the sake of argument and the people watching, this is an externally rotated position. Okay. Right. As we go through the ankle rocker, so this is where you would you would experience most of what we, we would refer to as pronation. And so that ankle rocker is the middle phase of propulsion. Now, the end is 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 late where the heel's actually off the ground, but where the maximum force is produced, the forefoot is still down on the ground in its most internally rotated position. So this is the most pronated position. And as the heel breaks from the ground is the release of maximum force. Okay. So, okay. So, so what we have is we have this energy storage phase uh -huh. where we go from early through the middle phase. All the connective tissues are stretched. So it's like, it's like Wile E. Coyote pulling back the big acne right. rubber band. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And then he releases the rubber band. Okay. And so that's the point of maximum force, but that's what that's what the heel break from the ground. There's actually some really cool research that just came out recently that look, they were looking at the connective tissues on the bottom of the foot. Okay. And they actually measured this. And there's actually this tiny little phase, and I've been talking about this for a while, and I call it maximum propulsion, which is where the release of the force actually takes place. It's when the heel actually breaks from the ground. Okay. So if we're thinking about sprinting, or if you think about footwork associated with with 
combatives yes, kind of moving around. Yeah. So 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 the heel doesn't actually have to touch the ground. It's actually just the position of the release of force. But if I come from a position where my foot is grounded, it's going to be when the heel immediately breaks from the ground. So you're going to go through this middle propulsive phase. So if I was going to deliver a strike of any kind where I have to take force from the ground, mm -hmm. I'm going to be pushing through the medial heel. I'm going to be pushing through that first, the, the first metatarsal head, so right behind the big toe. And as the heel breaks from the ground, that's going to be the, the, the maximum release of energy. Okay. Okay. So if I'm coming down, where I would be a sprinter, where I'm coming down, and, I, and basically a four-foot strike where the heel never really touches the ground, but it gets really close, and it's the, it's the same place okay. if, I was, if my heel was coming up off the ground where I had loaded the, the, the heel, okay, it's going to be when I hit the heel breaks from the ground. As I'm coming down, it's the exact same place. Okay. So it's still mimicking the same action. Yeah, because the, the forefoot, because the forefoot is in its it, it, it's grounded force producing position. Okay. But it's when the heel breaks from the ground that that actually takes place. So are those early and mid stages then shortened, like in a sprint or a bouncing? Very. Okay. Very. So you're just reducing the the right because the time that those are expressed. A sprinter's ground contact time, like, like at the highest possible levels, like between 0.11 and 0.08 just, Yeah, it's, it's like ridiculously yeah. fast. Right, but so if, if again as a as a martial artist, so a punch is delivered at about twelve hundred degrees per second. Okay, which is still really fast. So it's like right. spinning your arm around in a circle four times in a second. Okay. That's how fast. Yeah, that's how fast a punch is. So you think about, you know, and, and again, I know I know you're not a big fan, but if you look at the one inch punch oh, concept, right? No, but, right. but yes. But so what, no. what? What he's actually doing is he's using that concept mm -hmm. to do, to deliver the the force production. So he there's a there's that that brief moment where there's that. Load. It's like a sprinter's contact okay. to the ground, where where he is is stretching the connective tissues. They store the energy and then they release it, and and it's translated into into the punch itself. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So 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 what again? I know I, I know the concept is kind of funny, but 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 the reality is is like that's how force is delivered. It's, okay. It's the load and load of the connective tissue. So so the the connective tissues expand. They yield. They overcome as they release their energy, and that's why you get the force production. Muscles can't do that. They Connect, can't. Connective tissues do. Yeah. Can muscles are just. Muscles are slack, really. Well, mu muscles are, are tuners. So, okay. so what they do is they tune the connective tissues to behave a certain way. So if I can, if I if I con contract a muscle, I'm I'm actually affecting its connection to the connective tissues. Okay. Right? All muscles connect through connective tissues. Got it. So it's the connective tissues that store and release the energy that we see demonstrated. Muscles muscles by themselves are 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 really not great at at the velocity-based, force-based stuff. It's the storage and release of energy in the connective tissues, including your skeleton. So when we're talking about the, like the heaviest loads possible, um, like a power lifter or whatever, they actually use their skeleton to store and release energy, okay. which is incredibly powerful because you think about like a, a, a bone would be like the stiffest possible rubber band sure. versus like a skinny, thin rubber band. Like the skinny ones are fast, they snap, but if I can pull a really thick rubber band to mm -hmm. the same distance as a skinny one and release that, that's a ton of energy. So the bones are kind of like that. Okay. That's like when those high force production things, people tend to rupture connective tissues versus muscles. Right, because they're the ones expressing well, it, that. It all depends on, on on so there's a rate of loading that's going to determine how connected tissues behave, whether they behave stiffer or whether they're they're more elastic. Okay, like that's how you break a bone versus sprain a ligament versus 
terra tendon. Okay. Like whatever becomes the stiffest at that moment in time absorbs most of the energy and then it has a certain tolerance to load where it becomes elastic and then once you hit that plastic phase and you go past this like pow, then you get the so you get the break. So like a non-Newtonian fluid then, basically. Kind of, yes. Like silly putty. Yeah, it is. It is. It's, it's okay. So the silly putty. You pull it I use silly putty all the time. Oh. I use silly putty all the time as okay. representation because if you pull it slowly, it stretches. And if you pull it fast, it breaks. And that's literally how every tissue in your body behaves. Really? Every single. Yes. Okay. Because you're, you're, you're mostly connective tissue. Outside of the water, you're mostly yeah. connective tissues. Okay. Right? And then you get some other stuff, like you get specialized cells, which like muscle cells are specialized cells, liver cells are specialized cells. Sure. But most you're mostly connective tissue for a reason. And so that's really what's driving for the majority force production and force and, velocity. And everything, everything everything that we say demonstrated, if we didn't have if we didn't have the connective tissue behaviors, we would not be able to do anything. We'd be like boneless chickens. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And then can I go back to really quickly the skeleton thing? Absolutely. For, so yeah. that has potential to drive force and 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 power as and well. Sprint. So a sprinter, if you didn't have if it didn't have the the stiffness of the skeleton, they wouldn't be able to bounce across the ground the way they do. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, that sort of relates to how we talk about delivering power and punches, trying not to focus so much on moving the mass of the fist, say, but more in. Like waving the energy up from the ground it is in, into the, it is a way into the target a thousand percent. There's only there's only one way that you can transfer energy without moving mass, and that's through wave, right. wave behavior. So, okay. So there's a vibration that comes up from the ground. It translates through your body into whatever you're making contact with. Whether we're talking about throwing a baseball, throwing a punch, throwing a kick, whatever it might be. And that is predominantly done through your connective tissues, and uh -huh. the muscles are just tuning. They're, exactly. So so if a muscle contracts really really fast, the the connective tissues that it's attached to has to create some measure of behavior. So if it's really, really fast, I can make a tendon very, very stiff, or I can make a tendon stretch very easily. So if I apply slow tension, right, the, it's just like silly putty. Yeah. If I apply slow tension to, to a connective tissue, it will easily elongate to okay. whatever its capabilities are. If I pull it really, really fast, it resists and it becomes very, very stiff. Okay. It's still, but it still stretches and it still releases energy. Got it. It stores energy based on that behavior. So, okay. So again, it's like it's like muscles are tuners. They're, they're not great at doing a whole lot of things other than tuning. Interesting. Yes. Okay. That's... Opposite of what everybody says. Well, everybody thinks that you lift things with muscles because that's what we see. Right. Right. It's easier to see muscles than it is to sort of see the tendon behavior, or fascia behavior, or whatever. But but it's like there's no way. Like take take the muscle away from everything and just watch it behave, and then say, well, why is it connected to all of these connective tissues? Yeah. Well, because that's what actually moves. Right. Okay. That's what produces the force. That's what's elongating, and I mean. Walking is incredibly efficient. It's very low energy because right. it's mostly connective tissue behavior. It's like the muscles turn on and off to tune these things so that so that the connective tissue behave at the right time, so they can dampen forces or or create stiffness when I need more force. Okay. Right. So so there's like a point in time in every every step that you take where there's a maximum force into the ground, and like you have to be like, and it's it's literally like a jolt, right? Yeah. And so so that's what continues to propel me forward, but then I have all of these connective tissues throughout my entire body that dampen the, the wave behavior that allows it to look very smooth. And otherwise, you know, your head would be snapped around and your vision would be so blurry. Right. Right? Yeah, so there, there's a lot of cool stuff about connective tissues in regards to the behavior. Um, force and dampening protection. 
you name it. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And it, be, and it doesn't rely on the nervous system. So it's fast. It's like instantaneous because okay. the nervous system, even though the nervous system is very, very fast, it takes like 300 milliseconds when you stub your toe to get to your brain and you go, because you ever stub your toe? Oh, yeah. You stub your toe and you, and you go, oh, this is going to hurt. Right. And yeah. then it kicks yeah. in, right? Because it has to go all the way up into your brain. Your brain makes a decision and spits out the behavior, but you knew it's coming. Right. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What you're, what you're recognizing is the strategy that you use to control your body in space and to manage these forces. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have no coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, man, I'm pretty fired up. We got the Intensive 12 coming up this weekend. I was looking at some resources, just those refreshers and things and yeah, getting pretty excited about that. Um, so, uh, also clinic day today. So we got to dig into today's Q and A very quickly. So let's talk about this. So, so Steve contacted me. He's got some concern over a leg length discrepancy. Not a big fan of the concept. We should probably put leg length discrepancy on the dirty words list. Um, using that as a frame of reference is probably a distraction in many cases. Um, it's interesting that we don't worry about finger length discrepancies or arm length discrepancies or earlobe length discrepancies. Um, too often. Maybe it's because your feet are attached to the ground that it seems like, oh, it's got to be a leg length problem. Um, you could demonstrate that in any number of ways, throwing people at the table and, and grabbing their, their medial malleoli as a representation of leg length is probably a bad idea. Um, there's way too many turns and twists through the extremities, through the axial skeleton that can make these things look apparent. And then it provides bad solutions like sticking things in people's shoes that don't need to be there and then locking them into um, ineffective positions. So that's just my bias. Take it as you will. Um, but anyway, this great conversation with Steve. Steve's a good dude. We went through some, some possible solutions for him as well to give you some ideas. So I hope you find this call useful. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Um, if you're trying to catch up on some of the videos, please go to my YouTube channel. They are all up there, and uh, you can go through those as well. Everybody have an outstanding Tuesday, and I will see you tomorrow. Okay, so we're recording. And whoops, and the timer has started, Steve. What's your question? Oh, all right. So a uh, question would be about one of my problems. Uh, I used to powerlift, but I need I had to stop it because I got a leg length issue. You know, a leg length discrimination. I uh, used to overtrain my right side because when I started training, I just never fed my right side as well as my left side. So I did really weird things like like this you know really uh, retracting and depressing by bench pressing and i did everything like this I, and i trained for years like this sadly you know squat and things like that and uh, i became aware of it and uh, stopped doing it and it's you know it still lacked like some internal rotation and things like that but left me with a rotated pelvis so my my right leg is buckling all the time when I'm walking. Uh, my right, uh, uh, the question would be, how would you approach to fix this uh, leg length problem? I think my left pelvis, the left ilium is rotated forward and my right leg is uh, caving all the time inwards. I got a left hip shift in the squat 
and uh, I watched your uh, how to fix the left hip shift in the squat video when you elevate your heel and uh, doing squats. Uh-huh. But the problem is that uh, my left leg is so much stronger than my right. You know, I feel balanced on my right leg, but, but the left quad just takes over and it's cramps, you know, all day. And right. it's, <laughs> oh my God, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> I just I just want to, you know, the, tell the things that I just became aware of it. Right. Uh, one of them is that my right leg, the shorter leg is lacks a ton of uh, external rotation it's cat it can't externally rotate right. it's weak right and the vmo is so much smaller on the left side right. the left side all the time external rotate even when i'm sitting now understood my okay okay yeah so 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 this is all this is 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 a turn so you have you have two two groups of forces that you have to deal with okay you have stuff that happens inside of you and then you have the stuff that happens outside of you and your strategy for managing that is all based on your structure so how you are made and so we are all made a little bit differently and so we all have a little bit different strategy within certain parameters so so there you know you have the same stuff that i do it just might be organized a little bit differently and and so this is what you're what you're recognizing is the strategy that you use to control your body in space and to manage these forces. And so so some people turn more than other people do. And so that's what you're recognizing. So everything that you're describing um, is representative of of this, this turning strategy. Okay. So it's not a side to side thing. It's, it's, it's a, it's a turn that you're, you're going to have to learn how to manage. So especially when you, when you bring up things like the, the differences in, in the, the thigh musculature. So if I twist, if I twist one of your thighs in one direction and I twist the other one in the same direction, <laughs> I have a different organization of those, of those muscles that control your, your legs. And so you're going to use, those muscles a little bit differently. So some are going to be positioned in a lengthened position. Some are going to be positioned in a, in a more short position. And that's what you're recognizing. The strategy, the overall strategy that you need to use is to, is to learn how to manage this, this strategy and then learn how to turn in the opposite direction enough that you start to offset it. This is not something that goes away. This is something that you learn to control and manage chances are the way that you're describing it, if it's accurate, okay? So if you have lost more external rotation on the right side than you have than you have on the left side, then you definitely have a turn to the right. And chances are your pelvis is, is anteriorly oriented, so it's tilted forward, and it's probably tilted a little bit more forward on the right than it is on the left. Now, you also have, go ahead. On the right side, uh-huh. say again. It's theatered on the. It's theatered on it's, the right it's side. More, more. It's more over the right side than it is on the left side. Okay. 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 Uh, I th- uh, I thought it's more over on the left side because you know I just uh, so, read so, something like right Both sides are forward. It's just tipped up okay. towards okay. the right side more. Okay. That's okay. where you would lose more external rotation on the right side than you would on the left side. Cause you said that, that you have more external rotation on the left than you do on the right. Oh, oh, if, the, the if that's accurate, if that's accurate. Okay. Yes. And, and so, 
so again, all that is is a turn that way to the that's my right. So uh, so it's a turn to the right, and then so you have to learn how to how to capture this this turn to the left. Now, depending on how far forward your center of gravity rests over your feet, so the farther forward you are, the more internal rotation you're going to lose on both sides. Okay, so, so that's the determining factor as to what you needed to do first. So if, if you're tipped up on this, this diagonal axis to the right and pushed forward, you have to move yourself back first and then you have to teach yourself to turn, turn to the left, okay? And so okay. that might be why some of the, the, the um, activities to, to offset the left shift in your squat may be still challenging is that you got to bring yourself backwards first. All right. So you have to have, <clears throat> excuse me, you have to have some internal rotation available to you. All right. In, in the hip joint. Okay. So we're talking very specifically about where we're going to try to relocate this, this internal rotation. You are producing internal rotation. You're just pushing it into the ground right now. So if we move you back, we're going to get some of that internal rotation in the hip, which will allow you to then create the left-hand turn. Okay. So your strategy then would be to do activities that move you back. So maybe you just do a regular old heels elevated goblet squat first to teach you how to bring your center of gravity backwards, okay? And then you do a split stance activity with the right foot lead that will push you back on, on the oblique axis. So again, so you, you might have multiple um, strategies that have been superimposed on each other based on where you are. The ultimate answer for you though, most likely based on your description, again, if your description is accurate, it's just that you've got a big old right hand turn. You got to get a big old left hand turn to come back. Okay. <laughs> All right. Does that make sense? Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, so you know, I, when we talk about leg length issues, it is rarely, it is rarely a, a, a true representation. It's usually a combination. It's a mm -hmm. Well, it's it's a combination of of influences. The position of the spine, the position of the pelvis, the position of the hips, the, the change in the shapes of the bones will influence what appears to be a, a differential in, in leg length. So I, I rarely talk about it because <clears throat> I don't look at it from that perspective. It's just a resultant of the twists and turns that the body makes. And, and you can create them very easily. You can actually do an exercise that would create an apparent differential in the length of your legs. So it stands to reason that if you have one that you feel like you're, you're identifying, you can undo it. Okay. We can, we can manage it by understanding the influences and then overcoming them through exercise strategy. All right. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, it is. Okay. Understood. So, so again, from an activity standpoint, you might need to move yourself straight back first. Okay. You want to think about, you've, you've seen the stuff where I talk about the expansion on the back side of the body, right? Yes, of course. So the upper back, the dorsal rostral expansion, right? The posterior lower expansion, moving the sacrum into its, into its counter nutated position. So that's an early propulsive representation. So if you go back through my videos that talk about early propulsion and capturing those positions, those are gonna be the activities that you're gonna to wanna to emphasize first. 
Then you're gonna go with right side leading activities. So this would be your right foot forward split squats. Okay, your, okay. Right, your right arm, like the, the cable activities where the right arm's going forward, right? So those types of activities are what you're gonna to wanna to emphasize. Um, like uh, expanding the right uh, chest wall and uh, things like that? Um, I wouldn't worry about concepts like that. What I would do is I would worry about getting the positions correct more than anything right. else. Makes okay? sense. Because chances are you won't recognize those those things by yourself. Right? <laughs> yeah. it, it's very Sadly. difficult. It's just very difficult to. That, that's something that's really hard to feel. Okay, you'll feel the result because the the, the I uh, hope the comfort of your movement will improve. But but trying to chase like a concept like that is is not something that I would worry about. I would worry about making sure that you capture the appropriate positions during the exercise. Right. So that's what you want to. That's where you want to. Uh, put your focus. Okay. Okay. Understood. Does that help you, sir? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, so focus on the untwist. Don't, don't worry about whether you have one leg longer than the other kind of a concept. Don't worry about the asymmetries and the musculature. It's just a representation of what's going on and it tells you exactly what to do. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, Is there anything else I can answer for you? Uh, well, uh, that's just answered a ton of things of, for me. So, you know, uh, one of the. Of you got a little bit of time here. So, well, I got some bench press, bench, bench press problems too. So, okay. uh, so okay. hang on. Okay. If you want to address this turn, bench press is probably not on your list of things to do. Uh, yeah, that's, that's okay. True. Understood. Because chances are. Chances are, if you're trying to do a, a, what would appear to be a symmetrical activity, chances are you're using your asymmetrical strategy because it is, it is the predominant strategy. And so chances are you're going to continue to emphasize what you're All trying right. to, to manage, okay? Yes. So, so from, a, from a, a strategy standpoint, from your exercise program standpoint, you're going to want to emphasize the asymmetrical activities that teach First. you how to manage and, and create movement in the opposing direction. All right. right. So the bilateral symmetrical activities are not the appropriate influence if this is a big enough concern for you. Okay. If it's not, like if, if, if the asymmetry is not a problem for you, and it's not a problem for a lot of people, but if it's, if it's a problem for you, then by all means, continue to do so. But, but um, understand that you're probably going to continue to emphasize this, this uh, initial strategy that we're talking about. Okay. So right. I, th I think that, that if you really want to address this, you're going to have to stick with, with one-sided activities, asymmetrical activities, right, that allow you to capture the early representation of propulsion and then make that left-hand turn, okay? That might okay. be why you have a bench press problem is because you're, <laughs> yeah, uh, you're I using the asymmetrical you yes, yeah. strategy, right? Yeah, understood, yes. All right, sir. Uh, and more or less, that's just answered everything. That's why I well, couldn't tell Well, you I don't know if it answered question. everything, but I, but I hope it was useful, okay? Okay. Pleasure to meet you, sir. <laughs> Thank Have you so much. Day. Have a nice day. If 
by adding my ability to produce force requires that I increase the amount of time that I utilize that. So now I've extended this period where I'm, where I'm producing force and I actually slow down, where I actually reduce my velocity, where I needed velocity, I have now created interference. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have no coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, Wednesday, another day closer to intensive 12 that starts tomorrow evening. Um, but before that, we have the coffee and coaches conference call as usual at 6 a.m. Thursday morning. Please join us. The link will be on my professional Facebook page. Um, those calls have been great. Don't miss out. All right. Digging into today's Q&A. Um, this one came off my YouTube channel. It's a little bit of a stream of consciousness, kind of a question that has many parts to it. Um, so I'm going to knock these out really, really quickly. And then I'm actually going to take you to a video that we did not too long ago, maybe six months ago, that's going to answer part of, part of the, the question um, that, like I said, came through YouTube. This comes from XFizz. And he asked, I'm assuming it's a he, sorry. Um, when you program athletic performance enhancement programs, do you include bench press or do you emphasize connective tissue response or emphasize concentric strength training where one is oriented more eccentrically, vice versa, or a combination? Okay. So not all these are equivalents, so let's just kind of knock them out piece by piece. Do I include bench press in, in performance enhancement programs? Yes, if it's warranted. So if we're looking for high force production, if we're looking for increasing um, concentric output, hypertrophy programs, etc., yes, we're gonna we're gonna program that in there. Um, as long again as it doesn't steal anything that's important. So if we're talking about dynamic athletes, there may be uh, periods during the year where we're gonna use the bench press. Um, as a useful activity, and then there's other times a year where it might be interference. Okay. Um, do we emphasize connective tissue response? Yes, always, 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 because it is always in play. And so we have to take those things into consideration, and especially when we're talking about dynamic athletes that utilize their connective tissues a little bit differently than a pure strength athlete, we have to take that into consideration. Um, do we emphasize concentric strength training? where one is more eccentrically oriented. Um, that's a very specific case. So in, in, in cases where eccentric orientation lends itself to gaining increases in, in movement capabilities, then we don't want to interfere with that if it's, if it's needed. Um, but all strength training is concentrically driven, and so we have to take that into consideration as well. That goes against a traditional view. I understand that, but um, I do have reasons for that, and that's going to be answered on another Q&A at some point in time. Um, how much emphasis would there be on force and compressive strategies? So that's, again, an individualized concern depending on what the desired outcome is. So if somebody is going to benefit from force production, that's something that we do by training over time. We identify the needs and we train them and then we see if we can raise that force production and if it enhances performance. And under those circumstances, yes, we talk about that. Um, because we're increasing force, most likely we're training compressive strategies because that's one of the, the components of increased force is to increase our compressive capabilities. Uh, XFIS continues. He says, Matt Winning says, everyone is weak and a 500 pound deadlift isn't really that heavy. Um, I would totally agree with that, um, that Matt Winning would say that 500 pounds is not very heavy. Um, arguably, arguably, <laughs> one of, if not the strongest people in our entire solar system. Um, so uh, him making that statement, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. 
Um, you have mentioned that heavy lifting can become interference. When would you say that happens? I'm actually gonna cut away to a video that answers that question very, very specifically for you, so sit tight. Um, and then finally, Exodus says, do you like the 2.5 times body weight squat for starting strength? I think it, again, it's gonna depend on who we're talking about. If we're talking about a competitive strength athlete, so a power lifter, weight lifter, et cetera, um, maybe some of your heavy throwers and such, they're gonna be able to approach a number like that. Um, but for the, for the normal human being, for the typical dynamic athlete, I, I don't think you're gonna to see too many two and a half times body weight um, squats going on there. It is a very rare occasion. That's not that there's people that can't do it, it's just that it's very rare and many times not necessary and potentially, sorry about that, and potentially becomes interference. So with that in mind, let me just um, remind you that if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Don't forget, go to the YouTube channel, just like XFiz did, and check out all the videos there, and make sure you subscribe to that. Okay, we're gonna cut away to a video that we did about six months ago, where we are talking about uh, performance training and how internal and external rotation interact and how we may actually be creating interference with our programming. Um, and so we'll cut away to that. Everybody have an outstanding Wednesday. I will see you tomorrow at 6 a.m. on the Coffee and Coaches okay. Conference. We're gonna dig into a, a, a Q&A. It's gonna be a combination of, of two questions. Try to make it useful. Um, some of this is gonna be theoretical, so it might be interesting to, to some of you, and then the rest of you, you just turn it off. It's okay. I'm only expecting about five or six views on this one. Um, <laughs> So we're going to dig into some theoretical first. And this comes from Ryan. <clears throat> and Ryan says, you said that the ability to expand and compress and expand again is a universal principle. Can you give a handful of, of examples in the human body outside of gait or shoulder and hip range motion? And also, can you name some examples in the natural world and the universe? I warned you. Okay. This is actually a fun question for me because um, I do like to kind of talk about some of this stuff. But Ryan, one of the things you have to recognize is that everything about you is a compression and expansion. So let's just look at your heart. And I think everybody has a, a representation in their head when they're looking at a heart beating. They understand that blood flows into the heart, it expands, it compresses, and then the blood flows out. And the, by the way, the heart doesn't pump it out. That's a different story. Um, but everything inside of you is gonna be based on compression and expansion. So the peristalsis that moves the, the lunge through your gut is, is, is compression and expansion. If we look at something local, like muscular contraction, so if I concentrically oriented muscle, there's actually a higher pressure um, within that muscle. So the intramuscular pressure is higher as we reduce the concentric orientation, we have a reduction um, in, in pressure there as well. So again, we always have compression expansion um, taking place somewhere at some time. It all depends on where we're looking. We're also gonna see this as, as global strategies. So every movement that you have is going to have some, some peak moment of, of force output, which would be representative of the, the compressive strategy. To what degree is then dependent on, on what you're doing? You know, if you're drinking a glass of water, it's not gonna be your maximum um, peak force that you could, you could produce, but there is going to be a peak in that moment in time. If I'm doing a vertical jump, it's a little bit easier to, to see that representation of, of, of that peak moment. 
Um, so again, so every sporting movement is going to have this, this expansion to compression to expansion representation. If we're talking about a high jump, the moment that the high jumper plants his foot into the ground, there's going to be a, a peak resultant. And then as he leaves the ground, he's going to re-expand. Um, sprinter, same thing, hitting the ground, compression to expansion. If I'm throwing a baseball, there's a moment in time where everything squeezes tight, time stops, and I produce this maximum output of force. It's just very, very brief. And so we don't see these things because our, our eyes just just can't stop time to, to recognize that but we can see these things we can measure these things in like force plates and, and we can watch it on video and such so Ryan everything becomes this this compression to expansion to compression if we look at, it, at the, the universal principles if you will we can get really off the deep end here and we can say that okay space-time has a very specific shape that looks like that and that's called a light cone because light behaves the same way time behaves the same way space the influence of gravity etc all play into this sort of expansion compression expansion um, if you were if you're theoretically near a black hole you would probably recognize this shape as well um, so again this is all theoretical physics stuff which is way above my pay grade but anyway it makes this a nice representation when we talk about our external rotation and, and, and internal rotation representations of, of how we move. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna expand that, that point where I have the, the meeting of the two cones a little bit so I can show you where this internal rotation moment is. And now we can start to influence this. So now we're gonna go to Andrew's question. So Andrew says, for someone who's looking to optimize performance or, or hypertrophy, you say that there's often a trade-off that occurs between muscle hypertrophy and general movement capabilities, given the compression that is created with muscle hypertrophy. Um, however, I know you use bilateral squats, and I'm sure other symmetrical exercises in your programs is the advantage of bilateral movements, simply that they're easier to standardize and teach, allowing for quicker learning and more accurate tracking, or am I missing something? Okay. So when we're using bilateral symmetrical activities, which, which are higher load, higher force capabilities, our goal is to increase that moment of time where we can produce force. And so, so as we add weight to the bar, as we're using these, these bigger movements, our goal is to teach ourselves to, to achieve that, that element of maximum force output, maximum compression. And as long as we're increasing our force and it doesn't interfere with anything else, then, then we've got a very, very useful strategy for training here. Now, the, the, the byproduct of this though is I'm increasing compression which slows down time. So it increases the duration that I am in this internally rotated force producing position. And so if, if by adding my ability to produce force requires that I increase the amount of time that I utilize that. So now I've extended this period where I'm, where I'm producing force and I actually slow down, where I actually reduce my velocity, where I needed velocity, I have now created interference. And, and so that's when force production can become detrimental. It, 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 it just simply interferes with our ability to, to represent that one moment in time where I have this maximum peak force output that has to occur very briefly. So, you know, if, if I was a golfer, and I extended the duration of the of the amount of force that I was I was trying to put out. I actually slowed down the the club head because what I want is I want that peak to be recognized at a, a very very brief moment in time um, that allows the highest possible force production. Um, if I 
have to reduce the field of external rotation that I have available to me, which is representative of, of the amount of motion that I need to demonstrate ranges of motion or velocity, if I have to compress that to increase my force production, I have now again created an interference. So, so bilateral symmetrical exercises are, are well designed to increase my ability to produce a compressive strategy, which allows me to increase my, my peak forces at the right time. Um, hypertrophy is a byproduct of that. Hypertrophy by itself, um, again, to develop any significant amount of hypertrophy, there's going to be some compressive strategies associated, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's interference. Um, so again, the way that we figure this stuff out, um, uh, Andrew, is that we train people. And so we actually have to do things and we determine what is the best course of action. And so we have to have some form of key performance indicator that is going to allow us to determine whether we're on the right path or not. So if I'm trying to improve someone's acceleration, so let's say that I'm measuring their, 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 their acceleration through a, a, a 10 meter um, sprint from, from a, a standing start, I take them into the gym, I train them, I bring them back and I retest retest that, that 10 meter sprint. And if that continues to improve, then my strategy in the weight room is good. And so if I'm using bilateral symmetrical activities to do that, great. But at some point in time, and maybe it happens and maybe it doesn't, at some point in time, it can become interference. The only way that you can tell whether this is going to happen is as you train them. And again, this is why we monitor key performance indicators. So if I increase force production, if I reduce my, my extra rotation field, but I don't need that range of motion to perform my activity, then again, I'm not creating interference. So all of these activities are great activities. We use them all the time. We have to buy bigger trap bars um, because we have people that can pull so much weight that we don't have enough room to put the weights on. And so again, these are not bad things. Bilateral symmetrical activities are very, very useful at certain times for certain people in certain circumstances. What you have to do is you have to understand that this is always an N equals one experiment. And we're talking about an, an individual here and then their response to training. So again, we've always got the expansion compression expansion on the table as a representation of movement. We superimpose force production on top of that to determine what is going to be the best course of action under a specific context. We don't know exactly where they are. We don't know how changeable they are. We don't know to what degree we need to make a change to get the influence that we want, right? So this becomes the experiment, but as long as you're following the principles, that's, that's where, that's where you're, you're safest in doing your work. Morning. Reading, sir. Are you on your second uh, round of coffee today, sir? I already finished it, yes. Okay. Yeah. So my question is about uh, the hip joint. Um, and it uh, goes a little bit in the direction of Manuel's question regards to reading stuff and implementing that information. Mm -hmm. So I read an article about um, CT imaging of the femoral neck angle and the torsion angle. And I watched your video about the, um, uh, the magnified internal rotation measurement on the table from the hip joint. And I've had one patient who presented like that, like with more than 60 degrees of internal rotation, both sides. And I was wondering how much do these um, anthropometrics, like the differences between individuals in hip architecture, let's call it like that, yeah. uh, influence my table tests and 
maybe is there a way to differentiate between those factors and the orientation factors that I'm looking for? So, uh, or is it even necessary to uh, consider that because the, um, the actual underlying principles don't really change because I'm looking for um, improving relative motion and improving orientations. So I was wondering, is this information in the article something that is valuable for myself as a clinician? Yes, okay. So this, is, this, is, this brings up some, a, a very interesting point. <clears throat> um, who'd they measure? A uh, thousand people, mostly Caucasians, and uh, a third of them were Asian people. I okay, think. were all of them the same? No. Why like not? A wide range from younger to older people. Okay. Median was about 60-ish age. Why, why weren't they the same? <laughs> because everybody's different. Okay. So, so everybody has a structure. They're going to have biases that are built into that structure. They're going to have certain strategies that they're going to use to move through space, right? So the, the people that use a strategy that drives the, those, those torsions mm -hmm. are the ones that stand out and they go, <clears throat> they're looking at, they're taking a snapshot in time and they're saying, this hip is shaped this way, this hip is shaped this way. And they're saying, that's how you are, Right. All they're telling you is what, is what their bias will be based on their physical structure. doesn't mean they're unchangeable, just means that that's their bias. Now, the degree to which someone can change is, has limits, right? And so, so you just have somebody that, that is biased in one direction. So I could have somebody that is biased towards narrow uh, ISA archetype, and they're going to have a, a proximal hip representation that's probably going to be biased more towards ER, and then I'm going to have a wider representation that's going to be biased more towards IR. Which one do you think would show up in your study as being the people that have that, that reduced torsion angle that, that creates the IR representation? Probably the wider people. Exactly. It stands yeah. to reason. It stands to reason that people are going to to be represented by their structure. So that's when when you see like uh, anteverted femurs, retroverted femurs, and all those representations. That's just a byproduct of of strategy that's associated with physical structure. Doesn't mean that they're unchangeable. It just means that that you might have a limit as to how much change you're going to make. But as you stated in your your question, it's like the principles still hold. You, it doesn't change what you do. It just might put the, the cap on what your expectation should be, hmm. right? Versus, you know, maybe, so I um, had a, a Padawan long time ago, long time ago, um, 90 degrees of hip IR. Okay. Okay, 90. Yeah. Do you think I'm ever gonna see <laughs> what would be the average representation on the, on him? What do you mean? Like, do you think I'm going to go, uh, do you think I'm going to turn him into a 60, 40 ER to IR hip? No, probably okay. not. But do you think that maybe I could reduce some of that IR and maybe pick up some ER in the, in the process? Probably. Yeah. Some. Turns out he was a really, really fast football player, like really crazy fast football player. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so he had certain physical structure that made him ideal under certain circumstances. He got a lot of attention. He played, he played at a very big school here in, in uh, the United States. Um, 
So, but again, it's like all we're doing is we're just seeing the influence of, of structure and strategy, right? You know, that, oh, this is so far away from the norm when the reality is they're normal like everybody else. They're just following the rules. So just follow the rules as, as we would say principles in regards to what you're going to do with them. It doesn't change anything. But like I said, it might put a limit on what your expectation should be. Okay, so um, from my understanding, it's better to look at how much uh, total range is available. Like when I'm moving somebody on the table, instead of looking where is that range oriented, because that's just his bias or her bias, probably. Right. And I want to get like the average <laughs> um, amount so of rotation. In certain circumstances, yes, you do yeah. want to average but in other circumstances so um so jen reiner doesn't want average yeah i've uh, watched that call yeah professional athletes there's nothing yeah. average about them yeah right they, they 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 were they were gifted by the gods to do what they do and so yeah. they can't we can't use averages to represent them we can use it as a comparator when we're you and i are working clinically with, with normal human beings We can use it as a comparator when we when we want to identify someone that has moved towards a position that allows them the greatest adaptability. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right? When we're talking about performance and things like that, we want reduced adaptability because if we have full adaptability, we've just ex extended their their needs to produce energy or whatever they might need to do that takes away from their superpowers. So when you measure somebody that is that is skewed towards one end of the spectrum, so to speak. Um, all you're doing is looking at somebody that is gifted in some way, shape, or form to have that representation, right? Mm. Like, like I said before, it's like you just have to kind of understand. It's like, okay, maybe I don't get this person back to average, but I should be able to make them changeable enough if, if we're dealing with pain-related issues. Mm. That's going to be the best way for you to, to allow them to figure out the best way to alleviate those symptoms. Okay, and a quick follow-up on that because you mentioned Jen's call um, as she's dealing with pictures. I've read another article about the uh, torsion of the humerus in pictures in their dominant arm, which yeah. is significantly different. So when I'm, what you stated, you those people are taking a snapshot like at one day and they say that's how it is. So. Um, if you're looking about a longer period of time, like say three or five years period of training, that's exactly where I could get those bigger or uh, lasting changes in somebody who might have um, uh, any limitations. Correct? Yeah, that is correct. Okay. Yeah. You can, un you, you, you can twist stuff more and untwist stuff more. So, so just look, so use the, use the aging process as a representation of what is actually possible. Mm. So if, if I apply a low tension, long duration um, strategy to a bone, it changes its shape, right? Yeah. Like you get somebody that comes into your, to your office and they've got a, like a wicked tibial torsion. That's, that's a, that's a low tension strategy over a long period of time that mm. changes the shape of the tissues, which means that they're changeable. 
at least to some degree, which means that I should be able to turn it the other way, given enough influence, if I have the capacity to do so. So the, the baseball pitchers are the same way. They tend, they tend to throw, and Jen can correct me on this, they tend to throw a lot in their early years, and that's where they get a lot of the, the, the humoral torsion when they're very bendy and, and twisty in with. Um, and then it just it gets magnified to some degree as as they get older. They show up in high school with with a with the the stronger. One second. They they get a little bit stronger uh, torsion um, it, through through that age group because that's where they're really starting to throw a lot with high velocity, high force, and so they'll see the the, the changes there. But but you can twist it to a certain degree um, with great turnover stealing somebody's superpowers so you got to be careful with that okay so ultimately it depends on the goal somebody's coming in always all right well, it's like it's like what, what who are they what do they present with right there's there's elements of complexity here that that we just don't know we don't know exactly where they are we don't know how changeable they are we don't know to what degree we need to make a change to get the influence that we want Right. So this becomes the experiment. But as long as you're following the principles, that's that's where that's where you're you're safest in doing your work. All right. Thank you very much. Very helpful. OK, so rather than thinking like, oh, I have six months. Granted, you do have six months. So we want to think we always want to have that in the background. But let's just say I got two weeks to make the change. Good morning. Happy Friday, I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay, very pumped today. Intensive 12 day two. So we are digging in this morning. So time is short. We're going to dig right into today's Q&A. This is another segment from yesterday's uh, Coffee Coaches Conference call. It was a great call. This segment is is actually a fairly short segment with with Matt, but it, but it's but it's deep. We we went into some some programming things that you want to uh, consider when you are are pressed for time or you have a lot of time. Sometimes it's best to add a constraint to allow your program programming to be more effective. One of the things that we have to understand about programming is that. Number one, we're really lousy at prediction, and so we don't really know what's gonna happen. So if we break the training into much, much smaller segments, and we look at each segment as its own entity, and how do we make the best progress in the shortest possible time, and then we change the initial conditions, and then we then we repeat, 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 repeat. And that's one of the best ways to, to advance people um, in their program, rather than saying that we're gonna somehow project 12 weeks out that we know what that outcome is going to be because we're not we're not very good at that. Um, so this is a great segment if you have interest interests in in programming. For those of you who would like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15 minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Um, everybody have an outstanding weekend. I can't wait for today and uh, I will see you guys next week. I would try to look at your timetable and say, how much time do I have? And then it's like, how long is it going to take me to superimpose that performance measure back on? Most of those performance measures are going to, going to change significantly in four to six weeks. So you can kind of use that, you know, when you write a program, you go, we probably got about four to six weeks out of this. 
Um, and so I would probably try to break things up to, to some degree in, in that way and then break it down even smaller into your, into your sprints. So if I had, what do you, what do you got off season? Eight weeks, 10 weeks? Um, it depends if we consider fall ball like part of season or not. Right? How, valuable on, How valuable is that relative to, I mean, is, right. does that so, establish, does that establish the player um, on the team as somebody that will be in the right place for the official season? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Is that what, are they using it to establish the hierarchy of, of position? Sometimes. I mean, it depends on, it depends on what grade you're in and where, what you've already done in the past. Right. So, but I, ideally we still have, we have August till January. So, oh, okay. Plenty of time, okay. Right? So, so let me, let me offer you this then. Um, so think long-term, obviously you, you, you want to have the 20,000 foot perspective and say, mm-hmm. I know that, that I need this measure by the end. Right. If you had two weeks, if you only had two weeks to make the change, what would you do? What would I do? I kind of like where, where you're talking with Jen about just like, okay, make the, try to recapture post activity as yep. best you can and allow them to be the superhuman that they are. Exactly. Exactly. And so allow a gradual change there. So, so when in doubt, add a constraint that challenges you to come up with the best possible solution in the shortest period of time. Okay. So rather than thinking like, oh, I have six months. Granted, you do have six months. So we want to think we w- always want to have that in the background, but let's just mm-hmm. say I got two weeks to make the change. How much change can I induce in a favorable direction in that shorter period of time? And then, you know, you've got, you, you, you've got that marker where you say, I, I got to get to the best possible situation. And then that two weeks is now gone. Now I got a new initial conditions. Now I got two more weeks. What's the best change that I could possibly make in the next two weeks? Boom. I do that. That two weeks is now out of the way. Now I got a new initial conditions. You see how you, you, you just keep moving him closer and closer. And so, so in this early phase of the sprint, it's like the, the absolute um, uh, measure that I'm going after is the recovery of whatever it is you're trying to recover. But by the end of that sprint, I want to make sure that I haven't lost my performance. So you see, you just sort of like create, it's, it's just Hello. a tighter, yeah, it's just a much tighter wave of, of, of activity. So, so you go iteration, 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 iteration. So if, if you go August to January, so what is that? August, September, October, November, December, I always have yeah. to count in my hands. Um, so, so if I got five months, I've got 10 sprints available to me. Each okay. sprint, each sprint is similar in the, in, in basic structure. The earlier sprints are biased more towards the recapture of something. The later sprints are going to be biased more towards performance, but they're still going to have the, the wave in it. You see it you, from a physical, yeah. structure, you're going to see it. It's like, and you end up with that, right? Yeah. And I guess I can structure it in a way because there's obviously times where we sh- our pitchers are shut down. They're not thrown. So we don't have the KPI of, of velocity. So it's, it's more about recapturing position. We can isolate and we can work on that side of things. Right. There's no and then kind of once we get back and throwing, kind of see where we are because we'll have yeah. time to make adjustments at that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you have a period of no interference, that's the time to, to you know, magnify what you're what you're chasing as the as the supportive element you know when if we're talking about whatever the representation of health might be 
It's like mm-hmm. that might be the time to capture that because you don't have to worry about the, the performance related outcome as much. You still need, yeah. still need a performance measure to track that because here's what you don't want to do. It's like, give them back all of their movement capabilities and then whatever your performance measure just disappears. It's like, oh, so let, and you, let's just say that you were working with a basketball player and I know you're not, but, but let's just say you were and you're saying, well, we're going to use vertical jump as a representation and you, you do a great job of recapturing relative motions on this guy and his vertical jump drops 12 inches. It's like, oops, probably too far, right? You know what I mean? It's like, you want to keep them close to, yeah. to their performance. So you're going to need a performance measure of some sort um, so you don't see decrements too far into the, you know, like force output or whatever you want to, you want to measure. So maybe you're going to use like a, mm-hmm. like a, like a, a four jump and you're going to look at ground contact time for power output, or you're going to look at, you know, a medicine ball kind of a thing, whatever it is that you think is appropriate for this guy, right. make sure you carry that measure. So you do have something if they're not throwing. Okay. 